This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. How does scale factor into the practice of architecture? For any architect, scale and proportion are two skills that appear to be the most challenging to master. Scale and proportion are also where a good architect makes their living, and that's the topic we're tackling today. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about scale and how it works in various ways in the realm of architecture. Where is it addressed? Does it matter? What are the different ways that we acknowledge it every single day? So, Andrew and I, I should just address you. Hey, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, a couple of weeks ago, we were recording an episode, and we were going to talk about scale. It's like one piece of maybe 10 other things that we were talking about. And maybe a quarter of the way in, we thought, we need to not talk about scale on this episode because there's enough meat on this bone that we should turn it into its own show. Yeah, its own episode, sure, because we could go down about a billion rabbit holes real fast. There are about a billion rabbit holes on scale. And you know what? I have fairly strong... I mean, I say that about a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was like, aren't all your opinions fairly strong, Bob? Come on. No, well, okay, maybe. <laughs> but if if <laughs> if I'm going to vocalize them, like I don't, you know me well enough to, to probably disagree with what I'm about to say, but I'm going to tell you it's true. That's fine. I don't say everything that I'm thinking. So if I'm actually going to take the time to say it, I tend to have a hot opinion about it. That's the premise here. Okay, I'm right? going to let that go. So, You're right. Right, because, I mean, you don't know what I don't say. In your mind, you just go, I'm scared of what you don't say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, I know. And Well, you're also well the fact that I couch what I say depending on the environment and the people that I'm around. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't get much couching. It, it, it all comes, or yeah. a majority of it, I think, I get. Yeah, there's not a lot of filters between you and I, Yep. Uh, which is probably why you're on this show. <laughs> You know, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if I'm going to say something, it should be to somebody that, that kind of gets me at my best and my worst. So yep. scale systems. Let's start with this. There's a bunch of different systems that exist. We all learn these when we're in school, or at least we talk about them in some capacity. You know, maybe you can chime in as to whether or not it's still taught or if there's assignments that use these things. But, but I thought we'd start off with just talking about a couple of the biggies. And the biggest one, I think, the one that I think everybody who comes out of architecture school knows is the golden section. And the golden section is actually known by a couple different names. Did you call it the golden section or golden ratio or golden mean? I don't know if everybody calls it the same thing. It was golden section for me. Yeah, and it was golden section for me as well. If I refer to it, I'm still referring to it in that way. Yeah, which makes sense because, you know, I don't know if that's what everybody calls it, but it seems like at least in the architectural sphere of influence, we all seem to refer to it as the golden section. But Whatever you do want to call it, it's basically a mathematical ratio that is commonly found in nature. It's closely related to the Fibonacci sequence, which is 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 55, 89. That's as high as I can go off top from off memory. Off top of your head. <laughs> yeah. But essentially, it's each new number is the sum of the previous two. And I remember the first time I learned about the Fibonacci sequence, it had to do with how sunflowers grow. And how the seeds are arranged and how beehives are composed. The way these things kind of come together, there's a pattern that you can tell and it. it's always the same. Yeah. 
Yeah. I thought that was kind of crazy that like you can look at every sunflower seed that's ever grown and the seeds come out in the same pattern, the Fibonacci sequence. So if you take that kind of idea, that sequence, the zero, one, one, two, three, five, eight, 13, whatever, you can arrange that and come up with what's known as the golden spiral which is that shape that everyone's really aware of. And it kind of looks like the Nautilus shell to a certain extent. But it's the idea that if I take a grid and all the grid is made up of the same size cubes and I take one cube and I stack one cube next to that. Now it's too high. Then I put a two by two cube next to that. And then a three by three cube next to that. And then a five by five cube and then an eight by eight cube and then a 13. And as I connect all these, I start to get this outwardly growing spiral, which is the thing that everybody is familiar with that is known as the golden spiral. Yeah, which is actually, I think, often associated with architects. Like, you'll see them when you search the internet sometimes and they do, like, business card ads or something and it's for an architect. <laughs> they always have the little, you know, they always have that little golden section in there is the logo and all those kind of things. Yeah, like Which proof. always makes me laugh. But yeah, that happens. Yeah, it's like proof. I'm an architect. Here's my golden spiral. Yeah, here's my golden section business card or golden <laughs> section logo. <laughs> you know, as funny as that that is, we're kind of joking. It's real. I've seen it. Like, I probably have a dozen cards in my... I don't have a Rolodex, but I do have a three-ring binder with sleeves in it. So whenever somebody gives me a business card, I stick it in there. Yeah. Uh, I probably have, over the course of my career, received dozens of business cards that have that spiral section. Yeah, I know. I I didn't want to go there, but yeah, I have a few of those as well. Yeah. So if you're that person, we're making fun of you right now a little bit, right? So so I don't know if you know this. That scaling system, I did a little research, went on the internet. Where all things are true. All things are true there. And I know that there's like the general consensus is that the golden section and that spiral, that scaling system has been in use for at least 4,000 years. And there's a faction of people out there that would argue that it's been around even longer and it was used to help build the pyramids, which I don't know. I'm not that person, not because I disagree with it, but I, I don't know enough about it to, to say, yes, I am on board. There's so many wacky things that are associated with the pyramids that I go, yeah, sure. Why not? Just throw another thing on top of what <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, if, if in fact the aliens did know about the golden section when they built the pyramids. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, and the only time we ever talked about it in school was just that it existed. In school, never once did I ever use it to do a project with. Like it wasn't anything that I used to determine, oh, to get the right pleasing height to width ratio, you know, which is what the Greeks did on their elevations. They would use that as a scaling measure to make sure that your their height and their width was proportional. Yeah. It's considered the most pleasing proportion system that you could build to. So they use that. I've never used it in my life. I did do a house edition once. It didn't get built. And I did draw it. I was going to have it cut into the concrete slab. I mean, it was the size of their master bedroom edition. Because the one time I wanted to play with it. And I was like, hey, you know what would be cool? We should cut this pattern into it because that's the size of this thing. And that's what we did. And they're like, yeah, that would be great. And then they didn't do the project. <laughs> oh, Okay. They didn't build it at all. I thought, and then when they, they got to the point, they didn't cut it in the slab, but they no, just no, didn't do the project. They didn't do it at all. Yeah, I mean, I will say that in my, you know, my freshman studio courses, we deal with it some. And there are other professors that deal with it more that have projects based on, on the golden section. So yeah. it still gets taught. 
I don't know how much you use it after that as you're learning about architecture. But after that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've never done a project where I've used it for anything. Well, I'd be interested to hear if someone actually does use it. But if we segue from that one, which is, you know, I would say of the ones that I wrote down, that's the one that's been in existence for the longest period of time. You know, you have like Leonardo da Vinci who used the golden ratio that extensively in his paintings. You could do a little research and find out very quickly. The one that I always remember being the example was the painting of the Last Supper, where they basically said, oh, if you divide the painting up in a certain way, so the two thirds, which is the bottom, it's not really two thirds, but the bottom approximately two thirds is where all the disciples are. And the top one third is it's like where the walls are receding in the background. Mm-hmm. And if you work the golden section in from the edges, the pattern resolves from both sides with Jesus being right in the middle. There's evidence in his notes that it was something that he paid attention to during his works. And he came up with his own, and this is important only for how we're going to segue to the next bit. He came up with the Vitruvian man. And it was called the Vitruvian man because Vitruvius kind of did it first. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea that there was the square and the circle and And there's been this longstanding research process that people have been interested in to figure out how the human body is a natural evolving thing, how it has mathematical proportions built into it. So for Vitruvius, his circle and his square had the same center point. But what Leonardo da Vinci did is he actually moved the center point of his circle down so that the basically the belly button of the Vitruvian man is the center of the circle. So where the feet was the bottom of the square, and as he stood with his arms out wide and then slightly lifted, that was part of the radius, but the center of that radius was his belly button, not the intersection of the four points of the square. Maybe it's hard to visualize in this audio medium, but so this was not about architecture for him. This was, again, about scale and proportion. Mm -hmm. But the only reason I brought that up is because it became of interest to Le Corbusier, Swiss-born French architect Le Corbusier, when he developed the system called the modular, which I always called it the modular man, which it's not actually the modular man. There was just a man that was, you know, he actually asked like an intern or, you know, some young man in his office to actually draw, you know, the picture of that guy standing there with his giant thumb in his hand reaching up. Yeah. So... That was an anthropomorphic scale of proportions, and it kind of followed in in what Vitruvius was doing and what Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man did, and even what Leon Battista Alberti did, where the goal was to find a mathematical relationship between human dimensions and nature, and then use that information to improve the appearance of their architecture. Which I think is kind of interesting because I don't know anybody who's doing that now, and this seemed to be like a fascination that went on for hundreds of years. And that system, the modular system, is based on a number of different variables. Mostly it's human measurements, but the Fibonacci numbers do make an appearance and the golden ratio makes an appearance. But all the systems that we're talking about now are proportioning systems based off of human parts, like your foot, your thumb, the palm of your hand, your leg, your forearm, these things that when we were not human beings were not as widely traveled. That was like a local measurement. You know, like they would say, how big is something? Well, they would say it's this big. And they would, they would use a part of their body to demonstrate what that was. Or, and I know that in old towns, like in the church, they would actually build in like the cubit or the circle that would say, like, if you're going to buy a loaf of bread, this is how big it's supposed to be. 
And if there was a dispute, there would be like a stone that was in the wall of the church that you could hold the loaf of bread up to, to see that it was in fact the size that it was supposed to be. Yeah. And so specifically for Lacabousier, he was trying to figure out like, how can I get this imperial system of the West and this metric system that the rest of the world's adopted? There's a disparity between the two. And how can we kind of find one that's more humanistic, which is in a very Lacabousian way, he said, well, I'm just going to make up my own. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to do my own. And what I thought was interesting, and I, I remember this, I might be off a little bit. If I am, I'm not off by much. His original modular man, it was based on the, a five foot nine Frenchman. That's how big that guy with the hand raised above his head. He was five foot nine. But that was changed in the 40s to a six foot tall Caucasian man. And it's been attributed to the influence of Western culture, specifically like movies. There's a quote I found and I couldn't find the source, so I don't know if it's true, but it was like, oh, in in detective novels and in Western movies, the hero is always six feet tall. Like that was a big person. So in 1946, it went to a six foot tall. I go, that can't be true. Is that true? Yeah, that sounds crazy, right? That does sound crazy. Internet, you might have let me down on this one. Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking right now. I've got a dimension of it open and I can convert meters. I want to say when he started, I think it was 1943, it was 5'9". But then in 46, I should have done more research. He went before like the French, this aspect of French government said, oh, here are these units and measures and standards. And he went to argue like, hey, this is a new one that we should be using. You know, and he kind of went on a let's go here and try to get people to use this new, quote unquote, humanistic proportioning system. Yeah. The one I'm looking at has it as 1.829 meters, which is six feet. I don't know what the time frame of it is, but yeah, it's, that's what the it's listed as. So, I've actually experienced the modular scale of proportions firsthand before. When I was in college on a study abroad program, the group I was with, we stayed at the Church of Santa Maria de la Tourette for a few nights. And I've talked about that before on the show. And the rooms that we all got assigned to were monks' quarters. And... Le Corbusier designed them based on the modular proportioning system. And can I tell you, those rooms are really, really small and they're very sparse. They're not lavish. They're not demonstrative. They have like the bare minimum of everything that a monk supposedly would need. Yeah. Like you walk in the door to your left is a sink behind you is a cabinet and it's open. It's just for you to hang your robes. And then on the other side of this cabinet, which acts as a room divider is your single bed it is a single bed. It's almost like one of those cots. I mean, it's a real bed, but it's like the size of like a, a hunting cot that might go in a tent. Yeah, it's, it's very narrow. It's very, very narrow. And at the end of this long, narrow bed is a desk. And at the end of the desk is the balcony that whenever you look at the exterior pictures of La Tourette, you can see that all the monks' quarters are ringed with private balconies. Like they can all walk outside. Yeah. And I can tell you, Now, I have disproportionately long arms. I blow the scale on a lot of these things. So I'm I'm six foot one at the beginning of the day. But my wingspan is closer to that of someone who's six foot eight. I have very disproportionately long arms. And I can tell you that when I went into this room at La Tourette, I could stand with my arms spread and touch both sides of the room, the width, wall to wall. That's... It was wow, yeah. less than my wingspan. Yeah. And I thought, 
this is going to be weird. This is a really small room. <laughs> like I'm in a closet. Yeah. You know what? It was perfect. It felt great. I never felt small or compressed or like tight. It was the first time I went, maybe there's really something to this particular proportioning system, which is based on human body. And it was based on a six foot tall man and I am six foot one. So it's pretty close to scaled exactly for me. And I got to tell you, it seemed that way. It was really great. I think that is interesting though, to think that the scales work out that way when you really pay attention to them at the individual level, right? That's what those rooms are about is paying attention to that at an individual person level and how well, I guess, maybe his idea of those proportions did work if you pay attention to them. Yeah. And I would imagine that those monks spend a lot of time in those rooms, a lot, lot of reflecting. You know, yeah, I'm sure. probably a lot of reading your Bible or studying, that kind of thing. Yeah. They're not in classrooms. Their classroom is a pew. Everyone else sitting on pews, but... So here's what I want to know. Now we've kind of hit on a couple of the big ones that probably everybody's at least heard of before. This is what I want to know. Does anybody actually use any of these systems to do their work? And the follow-up to that is, is anybody coming up with new scaling techniques? For some people, maybe some of the people listening, 1943 seems like a really, really long time ago. And it certainly predates me by almost 20-some years. Nobody's making new systems that I'm aware of, scaling systems. So it's not that long ago, people were still trying to figure out how we can can do this. How can we scale things? How can we proportion things to make them better than what they were before? Yeah. And there's a history of this going back hundreds of years. Not anymore. I know. We gave up. I don't know. I don't... Is it an ego thing? We just don't need it anymore? Or are we, are we all just so different size that something that's as humanistic, that's an air quotes, humanistic as the modular, just doesn't work for a lot of people because... Six foot and built the way his scale figure was built doesn't reflect a vast majority of people that are on the planet anymore. Well, you know, I think maybe it is a part of that. You know, we, especially here in the U.S., but we've moved away from that sort of one size fits all mentality. Right. You know, you don't find much of that anymore in the world that one scaling system or one sizing system fits everyone. So, I mean, I wonder if that's part of it. The other thing I wonder is if it's just, we feel like now we know we know the human body so well that we don't we're not trying to figure it out anymore in a sense i mean i'm not saying that we do but that that's the the ideology behind it is that well we don't have to figure it out anymore well let me ask you this because i know that there's a huge faction of our industry and i'll say like commercial interior designers if you're building office suites you're building out offices the study and research that goes into the ergonometrics of like chairs yeah is staggering. That's where a lot of this time and effort is going into that, at least from what I see, I'm sure it goes into other things. But if we go outside the field of architecture, think about like airplane seats. They keep changing the size of those, but it's not based on what's comfortable. It's based on how can I get more people in here? Yeah, how, how many can people can I get on the plane without them margins? complaining constantly? Yeah. 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 No, yeah. I Ooh, agree. Pay more, get six inches of knee space. And you're like, how about six inches of knee space? Because I don't fit. Like my body doesn't fit without jamming in the back of that chair in front of me at six foot one. Yeah. So there's a whole aspect of this, which is not comfort driven or it's not driven from a sense of this is ideal where human beings are concerned. It's a ideal for maximizing profit margins. Yeah, for economics. Yeah. I think it's an interesting question. I mean, it's an interesting thing to really ponder is why nobody's even thought to come up with something like that. The only thing I could think of is like we've fallen into so many standards because I was thinking of the uh, Neufert's or Neufert's Neufert? Neufert's book that's got all those things in it. And it's just a, 
I mean, it's it's sort of the modern day version of this, right? Where it, it's much more specific for here's a cabinet, here's a chair, here's the, all these things. But that would be the closest I could come with anything that's even more a modern interpretation of, of these sort of scaling devices. Well, let me ask you this. Speaking of Newfort, I don't know anyone who uses Newfort in the U.S. Like, it's not the default go-to. Like, we didn't use it when I was in college. And I actually didn't learn about it as a thing until, I don't know, my early 40s. Oh, really? When, Interesting. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started helping out a guy who was part of the $20,000 house program that Auburn was running. And he mentioned using Newfort to try to Frankenstein, like, what's the smallest house we can build that still functions? Yeah. And they used Newforts to figure out what those numbers might actually be. Yeah. And while that might be reflect poorly upon me for not knowing it, every time I bring it up to other people, a lot of them never heard of it either. That's so strange. I mean, because to me, it's, I think it was probably in grad school, maybe when I came across it. I mean, which was, you know, a while ago. I didn't necessarily use it that much, but I, I mean, I have a copy that I kept around the yeah. office. Well, I would say that for, if you go to any, at least any U.S. architect, you'd have to go through like five copies of graphic standards before you found somebody who finally had a Newfort's book on their shelf. Yeah, probably. Maybe yeah. I'm just a dork though, because I've got all those things. Yeah. I've got a good collection of architectural graphic standards as well, so. Well, I think as we talk about scale and proportion, part of the reason this is kind of a hot topic for me is because, you know, when I came out of school, that was like probably my biggest concern. When I first started getting my, my initial design assignments, and I was trying to detail stuff. I was kind of like obsessed with, you know, scared. I don't know what the right word would be. I was worried that I would blow the scale. I wouldn't get it right. It wouldn't look right. It would look heavy. It'd look wrong. I literally became like, absolutely obsessed with scale and proportion. Now, as it turns out, I think it's probably my, one of my strongest skills that I have. And all the effort that I went into it to continue to develop and be aware of it and focus my resources to getting better at it, I think it's turned into probably one of my very best skills that I have. And so I'm very particular about it and I pay attention to it a lot. And when I started doing the Playhouse competition a long time ago, man, I've never seen so many people just like blow scale and make it up and fake it <laughs> in my life. Yeah, I, I remember some of those are really, really good at that. Well, you know, it's it's funny. So I, I had used a judge, didn't I? Weren't you a judge? Man, I was a judge at yeah, least once. Four or five years. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of them. Yeah. So, you know, you would get these Playhouses in and they would have like, some kid just like partying hard, dancing. Like, uh, this is such an awesome playhouse. Yeah. I'm like dancing out in front of it. And then you would scale it against something else that these playhouses were limited by how wide and how long and how tall they could yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. If you're like, well, if this is going to be seven and a half feet tall, that makes that skipping, prancing child 22 inches tall, which is the size of a five-month-old baby. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Not one that's able to walk and skip and dance yeah. on its own. Yeah, not one that's partying that hard. Yeah. No, and it was something that used to drive me crazy. I would tell people when they registered, pay attention to your scale, get your scale right, use scale figures, and people would actually change the height of the scale figure so that it looked right with their design, but it wasn't right. Yeah, no, I, uh, we and had I, a lot of that. And it's it's one of those things I kind of go, I think a lot of architects and designers, they're really, really bad at scale and proportion. I think they're really, it's like... I don't know if it's because maybe people don't focus on it anymore 
or it's not taught with the same veracity in school that I don't know if it maybe it ever was. I'm not sure it was ever really taught at UT at the level that I'm kind of wishing that other people would be taught it now. But I think people suck at it. I don't know. I don't know a nicer way to put it. Well, I will say, I mean, I think it's, I would agree, right? I think that it, on some level, yeah, people suck at it, but that I think it's a really hard thing to master. And I think you have to spend the time and effort to do it, right? Which you consciously made this decision early in your career that that's something you wanted to focus on because you felt you were lacking in that area. And now it's become something that's really important to you. Because I mean, I don't know that I'm great at it, honestly. I try, but sometimes it doesn't work. And I, I just think it's a hard thing to to master and you really have to pay attention to it at, at everything, all the things you do in order to make it work, because it doesn't take much for one little piece to blow scale one window height that's wrong or one column or even a door size, you know, any of those kind of things can blow the scale wide open. So I think it's hard to do. It is hard to do. Let's segue into one of the silos of conversation that I know that we wanted to get into. And the one I have that I think follows this part of it really well is the scale for design, which is really kind of talking about proportion. And when we were talking about it the other day, it was like the idea that if you did an eight by eight room, it shouldn't have a 20 foot tall ceiling. Yeah. Right. Because that space would feel bad. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. You'd go in and, and you know, and it's actually funny because I was talking with my wife just yesterday and I was complaining and about, you know, cause we're renovating the house right now. And there's all these things that's kind of spring up there. The difference between like renovation and new construction is renovation has this aspect of like, what if, and oh my God, as soon as you pull something off, you find something you didn't expect yeah. and the best laid plans just kind of go out the window. Yeah. And so, and I'm having that in a massive way right now in a fireplace that we're in the middle of demoing. And so I was kind of moping around the house and I was telling my wife, like how things had to change and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, you know how many people are actually going to notice all the things that you're talking about? She goes like, none, maybe some of your friends <laughs> and probably not even all of them. Yeah. And I go, but it's one, it's my house and I'm going to notice it. And that's really all I care about. But she goes, the thing that you obsess over, and she's talking about me. She goes, the things you obsess over, she goes, nobody, nobody knows and nobody cares. And I was like, first off, you're wrong about that. And I'll give you the easiest example that will prove to you that you're wrong about it. And I said, how many times have we talked about one of the skill sets that good architects, good designers have is their ability to articulate why they like something. They can walk to you and say, you know why this room is good? And they can start rattling off all the kind of pieces that build a successful space. Mm -hmm. And it's our ability to understand why something works or doesn't work so that we can break it apart, put it into our toolkit so that we can recreate solutions without rebuilding the exact same space. Does that make yeah. sense? No, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So I go, when you walk into a space, you go, you know, I really like this space. And I'll say, why? And you go, I don't know. It just feels right. And I go, that's what we're talking about here. You may not know that all these things are scaled appropriately or they're sized just right, but you can sense it. You know it. When you walk into a space that's the right scale, the right proportion, things are done properly, the lighting is good. You may not be able to articulate all those whys, but you know it. And she goes, okay, that's a fair point. Yeah. People that aren't architects or I would say, yeah, architects or artists or something, right? They do get that feeling. They just don't understand why or they can't articulate why. Like you said, they're just going to go, man, it just feels good in here. And as an architect, we have the ability to go, well, this is why it feels good in here. And so let's look at it 
it's something that every person can understand. They just might not know the level of which they understand it. I mean, because some people yeah. can go into a space and go, oh man, this feels really calming in here. And it, you know, everything seems right. feels good. And you're like, well, yeah, that's because of X, Y, and Z. And you know, the lighting's a little bit soft and it's diffuse and all these sort of things. And yeah. And you don't have like visual, like shouting taking place because things are where you would think they would be. Yeah. You know, and, and if I add another layer to this layer cake as an idea, it's also the same idea that as a designer, if you take something that everybody's used to seeing, like say a light switch, everyone's just used to them. You expect to see them. They're there. So when yeah. you look at a wall, your brain kind of erases it. It doesn't figure into the why it's good or it's not good or it's, it's contributing or whatever. Yeah. It's almost always exactly where you expect it to be. If I were to take that light switch, and there's no reason why I couldn't do this, and rotate it horizontally. Like when's the last time you saw a light switch, like a paddle light switch that was horizontal? As opposed oh, to yeah, vertical. yeah, yeah. You never see it. But if no. I did that, I guarantee you every person would notice that. Yeah, for sure. It would jump out at them. And that goes back to the, the idea that how we've evolved as human beings. It was the idea that when I'm walking in the field of the Serengeti, I'm designed to notice that things aren't like everything else. Because that's where the creature is that's going to jump out and try to eat me. Yeah, yeah. If I see the grass moving over there, it needs to be on my radar screen that that's different from everything else. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes if, as we've evolved that skill set out, because we're not worried about creatures jumping out of <laughs> yeah, hopefully we're not worried about getting eat eaten anymore. Yeah, <laughs> at least the people listening to this podcast aren't worried about that. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully they're not. That's part of the scale as a consideration of the design process and and how you would use scale to make sure that the height of your ceiling is. I have a blog post that I wrote called Scoreboard. And it was this one client that we wanted to fire because they were they were like the worst. And and it was really like the wife was everything for her was she wanted hers, whatever it was, to be better than like her best girlfriend. Like my best girlfriend just had her house built. Mine needs to be bigger or have nicer counters or yeah, whatever. She's it was. got yeah, 12 yeah. foot ceilings. So I want 14 foot ceilings. Yeah. And I was like, that's stupid. And <laughs> and I, I didn't start off by saying it that way. I was like, OK. We can certainly take a look at making the ceilings taller in appropriate spaces. She's like, no, everywhere. I was like, powder coat rooms, like the closet, 14-foot ceilings. Yeah. I was like, bathroom, 14-foot ceiling. Yeah, that's so strange. I was like, no, no, no. Like in your dining room, we actually want to lower the ceiling downs because it's more conducive to talking. It's more conducive to speaking. We don't want like these echoing sounds. And these are the sorts of things that you'd want to talk about and you'd want to think about. And she's like, 14-foot ceiling. And so... (laughs) We had conversations and I was like, I don't want my name assigned to this project. It's garbage. I don't, I don't want in a very, one of the coolest moves ever. The partner who was one of the owners said, let's fire him. And I was like, yes. And so then, <laughs> then I was like, I sent an email. I was like, Hey, can you two come in so we can fire you? Oh, you brought him in personally, man. I would have been like email firing. Thanks, but no thanks. No, we, we wanted to bring them both in. So I sent an email yeah. off and I was like, Hey, can you guys come in? And the husband responds and goes, I don't need to be there for the meeting. I'm very important, very busy man. My wife can take care of it. And I was like, mm, we kind of need you both for this one. And he's like, no, I don't want to come. My wife can take care of it. I'm very busy. And I was like, well, we can wait till you're not busy. And he goes, you don't listen. You're fired. And I was like, what? We were going to fire you. <laughs> Rob. You were robbed, yeah. right? Oh. Yeah, totally robbed of that. And and I went and I complained to the partner who who would agree to let us fire this person. She goes, ah, we got what we wanted. What do you care? And I wanted <laughs> satisfaction is what I wanted. Yeah, right. Yeah, we won, but I didn't like how we got there. Uh-huh. I know. I didn't feel the win on that one. <laughs> That's so funny. 
but that's all part of it. And the scale and proportion, and like even on my house right now, like I have a situation to where I'm replacing all the lights in my house. Like every light is coming out because half of them are weird square. They look like bathroom lights from the 50s. The, oh, the fixtures themselves. Yeah, we're taking the fixtures I'm putting in these LED lights, you know, and they're, and they're smaller. They're not six inch weirdness anymore and they're not brass. And so I had to tell the guys, I was like, hey, I need you to understand that I will be fanatical about things aligning up with one another. And not everything lines up now. So if your idea is that you're just going to take the fixture out and put a new fixture in where the old fixture was, that's Wrong. not going to work. Wrong. I'm telling you right now. Like yeah. this, this, that, and I start pointing them, blah, 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 blah. So these guys came in like swarm of locusts. And man, <laughs> they like swapped out the light fixtures in my house in like a day. I sent a message to my contractor. And I was like, there's like six of these that got to move. Because like this one's like a half inch out. And I go, I don't even have to measure it. I mean, to me, half inch out of alignment across 12 feet, I can see that easy. Yeah. You got to move that. But the problem that I have, and this is the kind of stuff that drives me crazy. This is why I go, good contractors are good. Good architects are valuable. And this is the things that like my wife was saying, nobody knows this is stuff. Is when they built my house and they're putting the framing up, that framer is not given two shakes about where light cans are going later. So the joists just kind of end up where they go. Mm-hmm. The good news was is where the light fixtures fell actually centers. I have two windows that kind of come together in the center of where these windows are butted together. That's the line. If I trace that line up on the ceiling, that's the line where the light fixtures are. And then all of a sudden you get to the air register and the air register is centered between the joists and the open space between joists, which is not where the can lights are. So it looks like that register is like left justified to all the lights. And I go, the problem with that, and the reason why some of the contractors I work with are really good, is the good guys are thinking about that sort of placement six months before light fixtures go in. Yeah. I'm thinking about it before those light fixtures go in. If I want to solve that problem now, I'd have to create a joist header to hang and cut that joist off so I could move my ductwork where it needed to be. I don't got that kind of money for this kind of project, right? Yeah. I'm going to live with this misalignment of this register. And it drives me crazy. My wife's like, you just need to settle down. And I go, no, it's because it's important, right? Yeah, but it is important. But that's one of those things that I think only our peers would really, really get irritated about. Again, the average person may not. I, f I feel your pain. I feel if you your did pain. that in your house, I'd say something about it. Okay. <laughs> I see that didn't line up. Well, oh, no. I mean, I already have some things like that, right? We already of, talked of, about there's some things like that. Of course you do. But in any house that's not well overseen during the construction, those are the things that are going to happen. I mean, even though my house was designed by an architect, there's still things like that that drive me nuts. And again, it's one of those things where I'm sure it was like, well, if you're not here every day making sure it happens, guess what? That's Somebody why. does something that doesn't work. Hey, that's the thing that kills me. When I was really focused on doing high-end residential, that stuff just didn't happen. And if it did, they'd fix it. I'd say, that ain't right. And they're like, okay. No grief, no blowback, no nothing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's tough. And, of course, I'm not paying for that level of coordination. Yeah, I was going to so, say, unfortunately, we don't make that kind of coin to no, I don't. have our houses like that. So we have to live with the, the murderous things that have happened in in the framing and sheetrocking and yes. all, that, all that other stuff that came before us. It's very slapdash. So let's talk about scale as a consideration of of design scale as design you know and this is like when you work at different scales when you design a project 
which is really one of the things we started jumping in on because I want to say the consideration a couple episodes that kind of led us to saying, let's take this off the shelf, was I was talking about the transition between doing residential work where the houses were somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 square feet to now I'm doing much, much bigger projects where in my office, a 30,000 square foot building is considered boutique. It's small. Yeah. It's very yeah. small. And and we crank out these 350, 400, 500,000 square foot office buildings with regularity. Yeah. And it shifts. And the people that it's been an interesting kind of and somewhat painful. I've, I've admitted this. <laughs> yes. That the scale of the big move, like the white paper move, right? I start with nothing and I'm making these gestures, these building envelope gestures like, What's the form of this building form, that's yeah. 500,000 square feet? And the people that are designing it are thinking on this scale, whereas the vast majority of my career, I've been thinking about things at a much, much, much smaller scale and it allows me to flip between the footprint of a building, the elevation of a building, and the detail of a door hinge at the same time. Like Those are almost concurrent for my design methodologies. Yeah. So when I'm designing a building... I'm thinking about how I want this door to open and how I want it fit or flush out with the wall. So as I'm doing the floor plan, that aspect gets designed into the project from the very beginning. That is a thought that doesn't show up until, you know, DD's packages at best, unless it's a design feature. It's a scale of something that gets thought about after the fact. Yeah, sometimes. I think that it still happens, though, that notion of big to small to minute maybe and i would say that in your stuff that you're doing before you were like medium small minute and now you're like large medium and sometimes small right you just don't get to that minutia level as fast as you would prefer or as you're used to in your workflow because to me i would say that door alignments and handles and the way that the door interacts with the walls and those are more minutia details that are really important in this high-end residential work because that's what matters a lot right i mean those are the things because you interact with them at a certain level but I do still think, I mean, at least for me in my process of, again, larger projects and commercial projects and those kind of things, there's still this back and forth of, I'm starting off looking at the way the building relates site-wise, and then I come down to the form, and then from the form down to individual spaces. I mean, there's still that back and forth from small to big. It's just a, it's at a different scale. Ha ha ha. Yes. Of uh, where it is. It's just, you've shifted up the scale a little bit, but I still think it, I still think it's required. I still think it's the responsible way to do it because if not, you end up with some of the stuff we were just talking about in the way that our houses are put together where you don't think about what's coming down the line. Well, let me ask you this because I think part of the consideration that's different in that is it's different people at all those different phases when you're working on big projects. So the same guy that's doing the big white paper design, the building form and the mass and doing some of the initial calculations to make sure rentable square footage and total square footage and all that stuff is not the same person that's considering how I detail out the door and how it engages with the base. And do I want to have the base I choose? Is it going to fit as a trim package into say the toe kicks of my cabinets? Yeah. Is that something or they go, no, it's pretty standard that we just use, you know, four inch vinyl base or cove base or whatever. Yeah. You know, how many office buildings where the default base is yeah. four inches. Four inch rubber. It's just four yeah. inches. Like, what's the thing about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, but I think that's true. I mean, I agree, I think. But, and there are some of those things, I guess, in commercial world that you slip over because they are just standard. 
but there's other places right where you can get into some of that detail but again some of that is based on economy or economics because yeah nobody's paying you on a commercial building to figure out oh well really a three and a half inch base or a five and a half inch base is going to be better scaled in proportion to this room <laughs> no nobody's doing that nobody's giving you that time and nobody's paying you that money which is an unfortunate reality but so I, mean, I think there's some give and take in it, I guess, is what I'm getting at. You still have to do it, you know? Yeah, you still consider it, for sure. Yeah, you still, you can't, I mean, let me rephrase that. You can, some people do. Well, I guess that might get back to, you know, I have a phrase that I use in my office that absolutely nobody gets, which shockingly happens a lot. I don't know if my pop culture references are just old <laughs> or, they're, or if they're deep. I like to think they're deep as opposed to Yeah, just I'm old. sure, I'm sure you do. But if I said to you, the phrase would be, I don't want to die on that hill. You know what that means. Yeah. It has to do with picking your battles. Yeah. Well, sure. I used to say, hey, this is not my hamburger hill. <laughs> Nobody knows Nobody what understood that, means. that one at all. Nobody what, knows. What are they means. teaching in history these days? Yeah. All right. So I, I get that when you're doing, like even on this 30,000 square foot project that I've been working on. Yeah. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the size of the base. Except for like in specialty rooms, like boardrooms, executive conference rooms. Yeah, yeah. The break room, which is actually really beautiful in this particular project. There's certain areas where he's like, you know what? We need to spend particular time and attention in these areas. But these 30 executive suite type offices that are yeah. all rubber stamp, they're all the same because yeah. there's equity that has to be involved because I don't want to have the accounting guy getting bent out of shape at the IT guy who's getting bent out of shape. At Got a bigger office or a smaller office than somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's part of it. So there's, there's yeah. a little bit of oh, rubber statement that goes in on that kind of thing. Yeah. But I do think that it's interesting because one of the small firm mentality things that I'm proud of, and I'm trying to try to get this to move on to where I'm at now, and some people have it and some people don't, it's the idea that when you design it and you're the one that draws it and details it, you don't miss anything. And you know your project really, really well. Yeah. It's not that uncommon in larger firms where the people that design it, they collaborate with the people that detail it. But the person that details it generates 98% of the nuances of that building that make it great versus really good by themselves. Like they're the ones that are making the decisions on, are they the ones that go, hey, we have an opportunity to put a base in here that's not four inches tall. That'd be really great because it's going to align with this mullion on this side. Da, 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 da. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes those folks fall into those roles because they don't like design. Design is not their thing. It's not their jam. Yeah. So they're like, hey, I just want to make sure that I'm using standard products and they're detailed right. We have the right glue called out and the sequencing is identified properly on the schedule. That's what drives their boat. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. I think it's difficult. The larger you get, the stuff that we're talking about really has to come kind of top down. Everybody in that process before it gets to that person that we're talking about now has got to be concerned about those things. And it's sort of, to me, relates back to that idea of studio culture that we were talking about before. You just have to try to make sure that those things get cared about at every level and that the care for it is, is known in the office. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think about this every now and then. There was a project I did a long time ago. It was an eyewear store. I actually wrote a post on it and I named it the best designed project that actually wasn't or something to that extent. This was like the first project that was like 100% mine. I handled the client. I did the meetings. 
I designed the project. I did all the drawings. I oversaw like 100%. Yeah. Bob. And man, and I wasn't that long out of school. I was, this was first year out of school. It was an eyeglass store. And like the plan of the store was an eyeball, <laughs> you know, and how your eyeball works became part of the informing. I mean, it really looked like a school project. Yeah. But it turned out really cool. And it got some interesting pub, like publications and it made the papers here. And, you know, it was, I was like really proud of it. Yeah. But of course, everyone's just like, it looks cool. I was like, it's an eyeball. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, they didn't get it. I was like, yeah, it's an eyeball. The thing that I thought was kind of interesting about that project, and that was when I really started thinking about proportions, I had to design these like swinging doors to display. Because this was a store that sold really expensive eyewear. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, you can't touch any pair of glasses without us right there. Like it was that kind of store. So <laughs> Okay. It's not like going into the lens crafters or wherever where they have you 10, can look at it, like but you just pop no. them on your face nonstop. Yeah. yeah, they're like someone could slip four thousand dollars worth of glasses in their pocket really, really easy. Yeah. So I everything was behind these cases and I had these big doors and I had to swing and I was like, how big do I make the nuts and the washers and the pipe? You know, is three inches too big or just is two and a half better? I really labored over those things, but since I designed it and I drew it, I could obsess about it every step along the way. Yeah. And I think that as teams get bigger and bigger and bigger in the ownership of the different phases of the project get handed off to different individuals, the interest level and the passion level and the idea of what it does is going to shift. But probably the thing I took away from that project the most, which kind of is why I started telling this story in the first place, was <laughs> we had a couple of really, really good tradespeople working on this job. And an electrician came in and I had these reveals in the wall and the electrical outlet was supposed to be centered in this reveal. And he had just screwed it to the side rather than spacing it out. So it fell in the middle of this reveal and the framer was there and he was actually the GC on project too. retail operates a lot differently than just about every sort of construction. And he made him change it because what ended up happening is, Everybody was at the top of their game and nobody wants to be the weak link. And if somebody steps out of line, everybody else makes sure that they don't screw up what everyone else is doing because they didn't raise their game to the same level that everybody else is. Yeah. And I think that even if you want to say, is this about scale and proportion? I think it is, but it kind of reflects all things that as you start to build up and have everybody understand what's important and how to achieve those things, nobody wants to be the weak link. The bar gets set and based on the people and the expectations as that bar moves up, all these things start to take care of themselves because nobody wants to be that person that's so far below the bar. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, right. right. I mean, or that's not what you want, but yeah. Yeah. You know, but that's the difference between like the firms that you traditionally think of as like a design firm. Everybody yeah. thinks that way. Yeah. As I mean, opposed that's to true. the gray hair firm where maybe their considerations are more on the, the skill and efficiency at which the documents were put together. Yeah. And, you know, I also think that they're, and I hate to sound that way, but I think that at some point there's a threshold there as far as the number of people that can work under that model because it's so hard to get 300 people to act that way as opposed to 30. Well, you don't have to worry about, well, I don't know how to phrase it. It's kind of like it's a lot easier to find those three people than it is to find 30 people like those three. Yeah. You know, at a certain point. Something like that. But one of the things that you've written down in the show notes as we were kind of working through our ideas is like the scale of design. And this had to do with the consideration of a project within the context of something much larger. 
Yeah. So this would be about the scales that are addressed on our projects, like global, regional, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So the idea, right, is that even as we're doing these things within the building, which, you know, most of the time that's what we think about is architecture is just the building, right? But there's also this other set of, this other larger context that we're working within as architects, whether that's just the site itself. We've got a 20-acre site and we're building a building on that, what's happening in there. But then how does that site relate to its context and what's local to that area, whether it's urban or not, and just to how that scale creeps up at to every level. And as you can get up to regional and global, there's different things that you start to consider, right? At the global scale, there's stuff like energy impacts and those sorts of things. And if it's regional, we can start to talk about material impacts. And I think there's just a lot of those ideas that as you think about a project in scale, you have to think about scale outside the building, just what that scale of your design is, right? Is that it's sort of moving even beyond the building and how as the designer, you have some, I think you have a great deal of responsibility to think about those things, but some people might disagree with me, but that your building is still part of something else. The project that you're working on fits into a fabric of something else, always. It doesn't matter if it's out in the middle of a field all by itself. Somehow there's some other context that it's got to fit into that you have to think about at least when you're doing your project. So that's that's the idea behind that is that there's impacts at all these different scales. And this is a much larger scale to start to try to think about. And, you know, that's one of the things I think it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to think about those things because you get bogged down in just your building and the way that the world works right now, the time constraints is like, get it done, get it done. And so you have to take another focused effort to think about scales at that even larger scale. Well, it certainly becomes more inwardly focused, right? I know that in our office right now, with everybody working from home, we started having conversations about office culture and that people are starting to feel a little more isolated, you know, because we sent everybody home back in March. Mm -hmm. And for a brief period where things looked like they were getting better, we started to bring people back in on an A-B shift kind of thing. And yeah. things were not getting better. So we said, okay, now everybody go back home. Well, you know, if you remember in the beginning, maybe you did it, maybe you didn't, but there were like teleconferencing happy hours. Happy hours. And yeah, yeah. We had lunch dates over teleconferencing, you know, we assigned people, you know, and they were a lot of fun for a while. Then it got tired and you're like, I just don't want to be on teleconferencing anymore. I've been yeah. working all day and I don't want to have a drink with people I work with. I want to go have a drink with my wife or not have a drink. You know, or just, I just want to turn off the computer. Or not sit on in front of a computer with headphones on looking at a screen. And then you don't get that sense of community because, and I don't know if you recall this, like we used to use Teams. We still do a lot, Microsoft Teams. But Teams was only limited to four people when this whole pandemic started. And now you can have up to nine. So we started like, yeah. limiting how we could get together based on the number of people that could be on a call or you could see, or we would end up using like a go-to meeting because you can have a lot more people on the screen. Mm -hmm. But what you get is you get a lot of people that just, I'm looking at a screen, a matrix of 30 people or whatever it is. And it's like four people doing all the talking and everyone else is just sitting there watching yeah. or listening or I'm checking a box or whatever. Yeah. So as we start thinking about it as a company in our company culture, we're going to do a competition and it's going to be a design competition. It has to do with post-pandemic urban living. Uh -huh. It's the idea of how can you live in a city? Because one of the concerns is that people don't want to live in cities anymore. They're afraid about living in cities because the bigger the city, the, the worse proximity. it was. Yeah. So this project basically is, hey, we're giving you a huge lot. 
It's like 60,000 meters. It's a, it's a big lot. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to try to design and put everything you can on this one lot so that you can, I can work, I can live, I can get my leisure, I can get my dry goods. Everything I need can exist within this one footprint. I don't have to get in a car. I don't have to get on a subway tube. I don't have to do any of that stuff. Everything I need is insulated. And yeah, how does this post-pandemic utopia look like? Like, how does it manifest <laughs> itself? And so we yeah. thought that would be a lot of fun to let everybody do this. And we're going to go through the process of coming up with a new design process where we send everybody out. They come up with their initial ideas. And then based on those initial ideas, that's how we're going to build our teams. And then with each subsequent step, we're going to compress the teams together. So we'll say, here's 20. From the 20, we have four major ideas. You get divided up into teams based on the major idea. And then those major ideas present. And we go, okay, we're keeping these two. We're getting rid of these two. That team merges with these two teams. So everybody has a little bit of ownership in the process. So scale has to do with everything we're doing with this competition. Because you start thinking, yeah, for sure. Is it low and flat? Is it tall and skinny? How do I create open space? What's my density? The particular design brief that we're looking at doesn't actually tell you how many people you have to put on this site. So we were kind of joking, is it a site for five people? And they have <laughs> yeah, right. they have tons of space. They got lots of room. Yeah. Yeah. Or this particular one's in New York City. Do we take the same square footage of any other place in, in New York City, find out what the population is for that square footage, say that's the standard. So if if it's yeah. fourteen pick an urban density and, and that's right. follow it. If right? it's yeah. if it's twenty two hundred people per square mile. That's what the density is based on the square footage of our property here. Yeah. And so my mind has been racing because one, I'm not normally a fan of competitions, but we have ulterior motives behind our reasons for doing this one. Mm-hmm. And so my mind's been going, ooh, do you, does it become like a zombie apocalypse situation where you're like nobody in and nobody out, right? Because that's the pandemic thing. Because like, that's what's right, happening. Yeah, that's what's happening in Texas. Nobody wants us to come to their state. <laughs> <laughs> right now, you come from Florida, yeah, Texas, know, right? yeah. or Washington, whatever, like nobody wants you. So yeah. do you start having all these like neighborhood factions? Like now the design standard is this 60,000 meters block and everybody lives in a block and in your block, you have all the things you're supposed to have. And so you have to like, what's the process for leaving or not leaving or letting people in? You can't just like somebody stroll in because that kind of defeats the whole pandemic post-pandemic environment system so now all of a sudden scale and context and size and macro and micro they're all represented in this one project which i think is going to make it really interesting and i was telling the people who are on the leadership committee with me who are there's four of us total that are putting together this design package we're debating are some people going to treat it like mole people like part of the design is I want to keep my site as open as possible. So I'm going to go underground with my designs. Is somebody going to go, I'm going to go super tall so I can create open space? Or is somebody going to go, I'm going to go super flat, create like these pockets. So it's kind of like a warren of open and everything kind of co-mingles with one another. I think it's going to be really fascinating. But it really comes down to me and my neighbor and what's our proximity to each other. And how does that relate to not just the building that I'm designing, but the building I'm designing relative to all the other buildings that are going to occupy this lot. Yeah, I think it's an interesting story. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking my, I'm going to build a wall around my lot. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And, uh, but yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing. But 
maybe just geodesic dome the whole thing. There you go. Right? Yeah. Dome living. Biodome it. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously on scale, we've kind of touched on a lot of different things. Part of it is just like the idea of scale as a measurement tool, scale and proportion. Part of it has to do with people using it, people not using it. No one seems to still be studying this idea of scale and proportion. Yeah, but now I'm inspired. We're going to come up with the like the LOAA man or something. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to make our own like man you know, with disproportionate arms and disproportionate legs. Disproportionate belly. And, you know, yeah, it's all, it's all going to work. Right? <laughs> you know, I did one of the things I thought was funny is so some people consider the modular man as like a humanistic scaling system because it's based on human proportions. But then a lot of people yeah. go, it's the exact opposite of being humanistic because it's the mathematization. I don't even know if I can say that word. It's the mathematization of the human body for scaling purposes. Like you're trying to neuter everybody, all the little nuances that are different between you and me down to a single yeah. system. So yeah, down it's to the, not yeah, humanizing yeah. at all. It's, in fact, it's like the most <laughs> unhumanizing. It's dehumanizing because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. True. Good point. I think that this conversation will be really interesting. We could probably dive into each one of these styles for a lot longer, but I don't have any beers on me. So I'm ready to move on to the hypothetical question for the show. Yeah, let's do you it. Know? Let's do it. And while Andrew traditionally, well, I shouldn't say it that way. They are normally my hypotheticals. <laughs> You're about to. <laughs> so a Andrew, well, uh, Andrew oh, writes okay. them and I write them, but I put the run sheets together primarily and I always choose my own hypothetical. I was going to say, I've supplied lots of hypotheticals. You just don't I don't choose ever them. choose them because Andrews are horrible. And I don't mean like they're, <laughs> they're just like, so I said, you know what? We're going to do, we're going to do one of Andrews today. All right. You ready? It's fair. This is fair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. here we go. <laughs> Let's see how feeling good everybody is. After this After is over. Is. Yeah. All right. Okay. Here you go. Here's the, here's the question. You and a person you deeply love are placed in separate rooms with a button next to each of you. You have been told that you will both be killed unless one of you presses your button before 60 minutes pass. Furthermore, the first to press the button will save the other person, but will immediately be killed. What do you do? And to me, there's... You're like, that sounds really morbid. It's terrible. Already, right? It's yeah. terrible. But I also think that <laughs> I'd be really interested to hear somebody say an answer different than this one. But since you, it's your question, I'm going to answer first, even though I normally make you answer first. Okay, let's do but it. That's because they're my questions. So right. if it's someone I deeply love, as you put, I deeply love them in the adjacent room. When they tell me that, I hit the button right then. Bam, done. I don't think about it because I'm not sure what I would hope for, like, Maybe they'll die so that I can live. I would feel terrible. Like that they actually had to kill themselves so that I could live. Yeah. And but they're going to feel the same way if you just did it. I know, but see, I'm going to do it so fast. Like they're not going to have a chance. Like it was just a race and because I have such amazing reflexes. It'll be like. I, yeah, I get it? that. Bam, but, first. I don't have to think about it. But you're wanting to do that to avoid the guilt that you would feel by living if they died for you. But you're just this displacing that onto them i'm okay with that because i'm dead <laughs> okay <laughs> all right all right i mean i do think that's probably the obvious choice but i think there's a lot of wrinkles 
there are a lot some of wrinkles we could throw into this thing. Let me throw you the first wrinkle. No, I get to throw wrinkles. It's mine. Okay, fine. Don't I? All right. I'm, Am I not allowed to do you that? Are, there are. It's, you're, you're correct. Let's go. Let's hear them. All right, because I have wrinkles that I didn't tell you about. So <laughs> what if they just say it's someone that you love? They don't tell you who it is. You know, I'm assuming in your mind you thought they would say, well, that's my wife or that's my daughter or whatever. It's in the other room. But what if they don't tell you? What if they just tell you it's somebody that you love? But I love this person. I'd still do it. Yeah. I'd still do still it. Still do it, no matter what. Yeah. Okay. All right. If they said it was someone I know, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I don't care. So I'm dead. That's what you tell me. Or we're both going to die. I'm not going to purse it for you if they, if you know. Yeah. Because either way, either way, I'm know, dying in right? that scenario, right? So either I go, well, I'm not going to die for someone I don't know, right? Just because whatever. Maybe they're a better person than I am, whatever. And I can live. Great. Right. I got responsibilities. I don't want to die. So, so <laughs> okay. if we both die, then mm-hmm. I haven't lost anything. Because the only other option was for me to hit the button and die, right? So yeah, yeah. I don't see that as a loss either way. If it's somebody that you know, if it's somebody that I know, but they don't. If they just say there's someone that you know in another room, yeah. Okay, so then when we take that one step further, they say it's a complete stranger, somebody you don't know at all in that next room. Yeah, I'm definitely not doing it. You're not pushing the button. Yeah. All right. So you just have to ride it out and hope that they do it or not. Then you both die. Possibly, but may- maybe they'll do it. Because here's part of it. This is what I would think about. If they said, like, what if it was, there's two buttons, right? And there's two rooms. Uh, meaning, in addition to your room. And in one room, we've placed your wife. And in one room, we've placed your daughter. And so one of the three of you is going down. Or if we said, like, you couldn't make it yourself. I would say the responsibility falls on the oldest person has to take the hit. I wouldn't want my daughter to be the one that goes because she hasn't gotten to live her life. She hasn't, there's so many things she hasn't gotten to experience. So yeah, I would say whoever's oldest, right? They're, sure. They have a responsibility. So if you know who the person is, if they tell you and you're the older person, I think it's incumbent on you to hit your button. Okay. For sure. And I wouldn't disagree. Yeah. Right. Okay. So then. Okay. Keep them coming. So far, easy. I'm going to click on that one. I'm going to, and this is going to be bad. But so they tell you that the other person in the other room is one of your parents, your parents, who is the older person. So I'm hoping that my parent hits the button. I guess. I don't know. I'm at, that's what I'm saying. Do you ride that one out and hope that they do? Or do you? Yeah, no, I do. Because I think that being an acorn from that tree, I think that we have certain kind of thought processes that are similar similar philosophies i think think my parents would take the hit for me since i'm younger and there's things that i haven't experienced that would be the assumption i mean i would assume that as well right i mean i would think that my i mean as a parent i think that's just part of it right because you would i mean you would automatically do that for your kid you think i'll jump in front of a bus whatever if i what of course yeah yeah so right so i feel like but that's what i say when it was that if you love somebody deeply and it's your one of your parents in that other room, then you kind of you think you wouldn't automatically slam that button down like you just said, right? I mean, I wouldn't. I know. I get your point. I wouldn't at all. I'd be I'd be like pissed if they didn't hit the button. <laughs> I'd be like, you'd be mad if in like two minutes that the door didn't open. And they're yes. like, hey, you're clear. Well, that was one of the things I was wondering if this question was going to go. Like, what if they don't tell you? Say it's me and you, and I go, well, I want Andrew to, to live because I'm older than he is. So I'm going to hit the button. So I hit it. Bam. I'm dead. They don't tell you. So you're just sweating it out. I'm still sitting in there for 60 minutes. Yes. 
and you still can hit your button and kill yourself. Can you imagine just you have to sweat it out now and go like wait until the clock kicks always down to find out whether or not you're going to make it or whether you're going to die when the clock hits zero. Yeah, but see, that's the bad part of it because right away if it was like, well, if I thought the same way, not that I'm older than you, but I'm like, yeah, Bob, you know, should live. And we both like. Yeah, then we both die. But here's the thing. We both do it. We both hit the button. But I would, then what happens? Sorry, I, I, I realized I was pounding my thing on the screen, but nobody can see my hand <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so that's part of it. So you could both end up sacrificing yourself. Yeah, maybe. I would assume, though, in our magic scenarios that there always happens, that as soon as one of us hits the button, the other button becomes disabled. What if you hit your button, but your second, you get a million dollars? Wait, what? Yeah. So it's the idea that if I hit my button first, I'm dead. You live. But you don't know that I haven't died. And so you sacrifice yourself. You get a million dollars as opposed to waiting for the clock to hit zero and nothing. You haven't sacrificed yourself. So you just live. You get nothing. But if you sacrifice yourself, but you were second you get a million dollars. But would you know that going in? They would say, if you get second place, you get a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't know. Right? So here's what happens. I mean, because how would you do that? Because you just have to sit around like, it would be the very last second. You would just be waiting. Well, I wonder if they did it yet. I wonder if they did it then yet. Then it's like you're trying to buy that thing on eBay and you're like waiting until the last second to hit the button. I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right? Know. And then, what, and then what if you, like you both try to do it at the same time and it just like, nobody wins, Right? <laughs> But here's the thing. Yeah. So let's say it's me and my wife. We're in adjacent rooms. And I go, if I sacrifice myself, like immediately, like immediately, she lives, number one. And then ideally, because she's not stupid, she knows I would do that. I would do that. Yeah. And then she just knows that she has to hit the button at some point to get the million dollars. You'd really have to know that other person. And that only works when they tell you who the other person is, because right. if they say you and another person in a room are in there, what if they said it's some stranger and you, you don't know them. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how hard we can make it where both people still want to do it, but incentivized to not do it. Yeah. What if they say, if you sacrifice yourself, your family gets a million dollars. Yeah, but that's not a choice. Right. You're dying for some stranger on the idea that your family gets rewarded from your act of generosity. Yeah. But what if if nobody hits their buttons, you both leave? So basically you're saying, I sacrifice myself to give myself, my family a million dollars. I wouldn't do that. That's stupid. Why would I do that? No, I don't I, think I would either. I make that much money every year, so. Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's stupid. <laughs> I was sitting here thinking like what that dollar amount would have to be to make that happen. I'm mean, going to think there probably is a dollar amount because, I mean, at some point, I'm going <laughs> to, as bad as it sounds, at some point, I'm going to die anyway. But if I can die and leave my family set up, you know, leave my kids in a really good situation, then that would make me feel better about it, you know? Well, it'd be like, what's the least amount that you would kill yourself for in that scenario to set your family up? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to put a dollar value on it at the moment, but, you know. Oh, come on. Let's hear it. Let's hear I, it. I don't know. I mean, I'm worth more than a million dollars probably, but I don't know if I'm worth a hundred million dollars. You know, so it's like, well, I don't know where that is. I think it's, maybe it's in the very, very, very low eight figures, like 10 million, 15 million. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say 20, but yeah. Wow. Think high of ourselves, do we? <laughs> no, no, no. I was just thinking about how much I would really want, how well my children would be set up versus me being in their lives. There's a, a weighted balance there. 
again, that's totally selfish for me, right? It really me wanting to be in their lives, right? Sacrificing their well-being of financially for my ability to stay in their lives. So when we boil it down, the point is basically we're going to hit the button to sacrifice ourselves for someone who we know or care for every time, except unless it's a stranger. <laughs> or our parents. <laughs> or our parents. <laughs> Which is bad sounding, but my assumption is that I wouldn't have the opportunity for my parents because my kid wouldn't have the opportunity. It would be so fast, like you say. My cat-like reflexes, I would be dead in a heartbeat for my child. What if you couldn't talk, but they put you in the same room? Do what? What if the two people were in the same room with one button, but you were not able to communicate to one another? Like you couldn't talk about it and say, hey, let me hit the button because you're a better parent than I am and our child needs you more than they need me. So I'm going to do this. You don't get to talk about it. Would you just like sock them and drop them so that you go push the button? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. Think of it in that uh, in that movie, The Avengers, where it was Black Widow and... Yeah, Hawkeye. They were fighting to see who was going to sacrifice themselves to get that one stone. One of them had to remember. One of them had to jump off the cliff. Yes. And so they were like beating each other up to try to be the one to jump off the cliff. Yeah, that one. Be similar to something like that, you think? No, because all the people I think that qualify for me giving my life up for, I could take them out easy. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how I feel about it too. Like I don't know that anybody's going to be able to put up much a fight if I really determined myself to do that. Yeah, like I could drop my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. right, I got you. Hopefully, you know, this is none of those things we never really have to face. But <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. You know, <laughs> we don't end up on some movie scenario where this is what happens. Oh, God. I know. That does sound like like a, there's a whole sequence of them. Instead of called Saw, they're called Button. Yeah, exactly, right? I know, yeah, <laughs> I know. What about if there was two buttons in the room, but they didn't tell you? I mean, one of them kills you, one of them kills the other person, but they don't tell you which button is which. Ugh. That would be that would be hard. But you know what? I think you'd get over it. You're like, I meant to kill myself. Like, <laughs> right? You just go slap one button, and then you're like, oh, I'm still here. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think that I would wait that long to do it either. Let's say it's my wife and I. Like, we're both pretty smart people. Yeah. So we'd walk in and go, one of us is going to go here. One of us is not going to make it. And we have to hit one of these buttons. We don't need 60 minutes. Just like, there's no logic behind it. Just hit one. Yeah. Would you just pick one? I think I would go into the scenario and I'd like put my hands over both buttons and just be like, whack, try to hit them both at the same time so that I wouldn't really know. Short the system out? No, no. Just so that I would happen. But it wouldn't be that I chose a button. It would just be that, I don't know, whatever happens, happens. Blank, both at the same time. I think that I would probably resort to eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, this was an interesting conversation for me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. <laughs> Andrew's morbid. No. <laughs> Sophie's choice <laughs> hypotheticals, apparently, which yes. all of them are. Yes. They're all Sophie's choice. Ah. But I think it's time to call it a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 55, Scale This. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get so fresh your mama made them new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment and also leave us a five-star 
This isn't relative to that rating. Be sure to visit the original life of an architect.com for show notes, links, and info and photos from this episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end. If there are any bloopers, you'll find them there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yeah. That's we're off to a good we're off to a good start. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, you need to retype it because don't try to come off the cuff because you'll kill it. I will kill it in a good way. No, and not in a good way. Nail it. I'm gonna make it up as I go. See how I do. Oh god. Oh god. <clears throat> okay, let's see here. How does scale factor into the practice of architecture? For any architect, scale and proportion are two skills that appear to make Oh. I didn't make it, right? <laughs> Gives it a little hot. Gives it a little heat. Yeah. I- so I like a jalap- I like I like a jalapeno margarita, I, but I don't have any jalapeno. I deduced that by you putting cayenne on it, it would bring a little heat. <laughs> I put cayenne on it, which makes it a little bit of hot. Uh, okay, okay, thanks. All right. <laughs> I put some lime in it, makes it a little tart, a little zesty. Okay, all right, thanks. Good enough. <laughs> yeah, I put ice in it too. Made it cold. Oh wow! Sm- smart ass. I hadn't thought of that. Man, yeah, ice. yeah. That's a new one. I'm gonna look into it. <laughs> for sure when you have like the frozen margarita they're better like I can't make frozen margaritas that consistency at, at oh all. really yep yeah. uh, I don't have a problem with it I got pretty good at it a few no you ago. didn't you know what because I have the same bl- no yeah, you didn't because I have the same blender you have and it can't make it as good as these other machines do Okay, well, that was fascinating. Thanks for joining us today on Frozen Drink Talk. (laughs) Frozen Margarita Drink Talk.